Welcome to the Love First Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time, please thank the person that suggested that you join us. And I want you to know that our purpose here is to catalyze courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love each other. If you're returning, thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. The holiday season, no matter what year, can be both a blessing and a real challenge. COVID has certainly added to the challenge, as has the polarized and controversial season of our politics. Uh, Leading up to Thanksgiving, there were online suggestions, podcasts, posts for how to survive the politics of Thanksgiving conversations. Oh, we know that politics can really light up a conversation and can even separate close friends and family. But why would we take a sacred holiday like Thanksgiving and suggest that the most important recipe was not how you you were going to cook sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top. Your most important recipe was somehow how to survive being with family and friends, whether online or in person, and navigating a political conversation. What that tells us is that our politics have outsized themselves. They've become a bigger influence in our lives than they they actually need or they deserve. The truth is, politics are important. They've been important throughout all history of people living together in tribes and in nations. I'm not in any way minimizing that politics make a difference. They've just got too big. My grandmother used to say, too big for the britches. The truth is that although politics should matter, there are other things in life that take precedent beyond our political conversations, and somehow we've got to figure out a better way to navigate those conversations. So this evening, we're going to take some time and talk through how do we equip ourselves for conversations around disagreement. Thank you again for joining us for the Love First Podcast. Let's get into this conversation. Love first, I know. Lord, take control. Love first in my soul. Lord, take control. So, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, one of the things we realize is he literally intersected all parts of society. So you can see Jesus with his family, right? Those are the early scenes of Jesus with his family. You see Jesus in his community. Uh, We see Jesus with his followers. We see Jesus in worship settings, whether it's at the temple in Jerusalem during one of the feasts, or it's in his home church, his home synagogue up in the northern region around the Sea of Galilee. We see Jesus interacting with political officials. We see him interacting with soldiers. We see Jesus interacting with uh, tax collectors. Jesus is always moving in and out of various parts of society. As Jesus engages those parts of society, and as they engage him, he always raises the question, have you thought about this deeply? Have you considered what you're doing? Have you considered 
why you're doing it. So he asked questions, for instance, at a dinner conversation where there's a woman in town that has a very uh, nasty reputation. The religious leader that is hosting the dinner is incensed that this woman is there. And instead of Jesus joining the religious leader in kicking the lady out, Jesus challenges the religious leader. Now, I want to make sure you get the picture here. The woman was not invited. It's not her home. She wasn't on the invite list. She showed up, made her way in, and to a degree made a little bit of a scene. She's at Jesus' feet. She's crying. Her tears are making his feet wet. With his tears and her hair, she's washing his feet. She kisses his feet. It's a bit of a scene. So when the religious leader who owns the house, who bought the food, who made the invite list says, you know, that lady doesn't belong, rather than Jesus joining his host, the person that invited him, Jesus challenges his host and actually takes up for the woman. And basically what Jesus says here to to his host, you're not seeing this thing for all it is. You're missing something. And in fact, Jesus even says to this religious leader, do you see this woman? Well, of course he saw her physically. But you understand Jesus was asking a deeper question. Jesus does this all the time. So his cousin, John the Baptist, who was like the person that was the forerunner to Jesus's ministry. John was the person who told everyone, get ready for Jesus. Get ready for the Messiah. But later on, when people were kind of confused, well, what is John's role and who is Jesus and who is John to Jesus, Jesus to John, so on and so forth, Jesus just says to them, you're not looking at this thing deeply enough. He said, when you went out there to like to hear John preach or maybe to be baptized by John, he asked them three times, what did you go out to see? You see what Jesus is doing all the time, no matter who he's interacting with, he's saying to people, you really need to look deeper. There's more to this. Now, that's challenging for us. A lot of times, we as humans have not disciplined ourselves or practiced seeing things in what we might call 3D. We have a tendency to see things just as they appear on the surface, and Jesus even issues a warning that is recorded in John chapter 7, where Jesus actually says these words. He says, stop judging by appearances and make a right judgment. Now, do you notice how his, the two parts of his statement actually work with each other. Stop making judgments by appearances and make a right judgment, which means if you judge by appearances, you won't make a right judgment. Your judgment will be will fall into one of two categories, either incorrect or incomplete. I want to take a moment on the second one. It's easy for us to point out to someone, well, you were wrong. You know, you didn't see that the right way. You got your facts wrong. We can pull up our phone or our iPad and we can Google something really quickly and do a search and we can prove to someone, see, you were wrong. You know, that actor wasn't in that movie. That band didn't sing that song, so on and so forth. It's easy to prove to people that they were incorrect. 
Incomplete is a little more tricky. Chimamanda Adichie, in her famous TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, camps on that exact point. She said, the, the, the problem with most of our conversations isn't that what someone is saying is completely false or isn't true. It's just that it's incomplete. It is what she refers to as a single story. There's just more to the story. And here's what's very important. By stopping at the surface, the incomplete becomes the incorrect. Now, that's important. When Jesus says, don't judge by appearances, but make a right judgment, what Jesus is trying to say is, if you stop at appearances, the fact that you see something and you're correct about what you see on the surface, if you don't go deeper, you will be incorrect. So the incomplete becomes the incorrect. So, for example, we know from the biblical story, and especially in this Christmas season, we know the nativity story, right? So the nativity story that we know is that Jesus' parents were from Nazareth, which is up in the northern region of Israel. And maybe uh, it's hard to tell exactly uh, by the roads they would walk, 65 to 75 miles, maybe down to Jerusalem. And, uh, but remember that because of a census that was going to be taken, they actually had to register in the town that their ancestors came from. Well, because Jesus' ancestry can be tracked back through David, the famous king of Israel, they actually had to go to Bethlehem, right? So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We all know that after his birth, then things got kind of squirrely over the next several months as King Herod was looking to kill Jesus. They have to go to Egypt. When they come back from Egypt, they go back up to Nazareth. But see, most people didn't know all of that. We know it because it's embedded in our nativity story. They didn't know it. So where was Jesus from? He was from Nazareth. When in John chapter 1, we have it recorded that Philip, the follower of Jesus, tells Nathaniel, a future follower of Jesus, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of, not Bethlehem, Nazareth. So on the surface, was Jesus from Nazareth? Yes. So is that part true? Well, yeah, of course it's true. But was he born in Nazareth? No. So in the fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah, that it would be Bethlehem of Judah where the Messiah would be born, that matters. It matters that he's from Bethlehem. So in John chapter 7, when a big dust-up happens about who is Jesus and who sh should we follow him, should we not, there's this huge disagreement. The Supreme Court, the, the religious and civil ruling of the Jews, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, was gathered, and uh, they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
and the soldiers were listening to Jesus' sermon, got distracted, decided not to arrest him, went back and empty-handed, which they got in trouble for. But then this big discussion starts, and the big discussion is about where is this guy from? Where is he from? And the accusers say, well, he's from Galilee. Well, were they right on the surface? Yes. But had they dug deeper, they could have learned, had they chosen to, they could have learned that he was born in Bethlehem and that he did fulfill that prophecy. So this is an example of how judging on the surface, though initially correct, the implication that their surface judgment disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah turns out to be incorrect, right? So the incomplete story becomes the incorrect story. That becomes very important in how we begin to process these difficult conversations. Because we are being shaped and formed by our particular environment, our social media, our television, our online programming, our news network programming, we are actually being shaped and trained to stay at the surface and not dig more deeply. We're being trained not to notice nuance. We're being trained not to ask questions. Now, some months ago, I, I got scammed. And it, it, yeah, I'm, it was wrong that the people scammed me, but it was my fault. What happened was I was looking up to purchase something online. I found the item that I was looking for online. It seemed like a good product and it seemed like a good price. I had to purchase it online, which meant getting a particular kind of uh, what we might refer to as like a, a, a card, not PayPal, but a similar kind of card. And I had to give them the information online in order to purchase the product, in order to hold it. Well, after I did that, I didn't get confirmation back from them in an email. So very quickly, I went back to the original posting and I Googled the, the address that went with the posting and the first thing that came up was scam alert. Had I been thinking and thought, hmm, maybe I should just enter that address. Maybe I should just take one extra step. I would have known that it was a scam before I gave them my money. Now, am I bothered by that? Sure. I don't like to be scammed. But what it illustrates is that someone knew they were betting the odds that I would look at something on the surface, accept it at surface value, and actually make a transaction at surface value. Was I correct about the product? Yes. Did I know the price? Yes. Did I pay the price? Yes. Well, all of those facts are undisputed. The problem was, is the facts were correct but the story was incomplete. Had I taken just a little bit more of a step, I could have known that what I was seeing on the surface wasn't all 
there was to the story. So how do we kind of move deeper? Well, I'd like you to open your Bible with me because Jesus illustrates this for us in Matthew chapter 5. This is one of the most profound teachings in all of history. In fact, what I find interesting in my studies over the years is that even people who don't believe in Jesus are not Christian or even are perhaps atheist. Look at Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Beatitudes, and hold them as some of the most profound teachings in the history of humanity. They are powerful. But right after the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about being salt and light in the world and making a difference in the world. But then, if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus shares something that will help us with our question this evening, how do we equip ourselves to look beyond the surface deeper to have better, difficult conversations? Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, first of all, why would Jesus even say that in the first place? I mean, is there someone who is thinking Jesus is trying to abolish the law, right? Is there someone thinking, hmm, Jesus is a 30-year-old Jewish man who doesn't want to fulfill the law? I mean, okay, so on the surface, we might think, I'm not sure who Jesus is talking to or why he's even saying this. Why is Matthew even capturing it in his gospel? Why did Luke capture an abbreviated version in chapter 16 of his gospel? But let's think about it again. When Jesus says, ready, do not think. Well, what does that mean? Well, either someone is thinking it, or someone might think it. So when Jesus says, hey, don't think that I came to abolish the law, what Jesus is anticipating is, when you hear my teachings, when you see how I live, when you see me interacting in society with all these different sectors, when you watch me interact with the tax collectors, when you watch me interact with the politicians, when you watch me interact with the woman caught in adultery, with the woman at a dinner party, when you watch me interact with a woman at the well, when you watch me walk down the road and my disciples pick grain on the Sabbath, when you listen to me preach in my home synagogue, don't think the following. He came to abolish the law. He's just abolishing the law. He says, don't think that. Now, I, I want us to stop here, and I'm asking you to go ahead and drive a little stake in the ground and be like, huh. So Jesus knows that his ministry is launching, right? This is, this is early on right? You know Jesus hasn't even called Matthew yet, the one who recorded the part we're reading. That comes later. Jesus hasn't commissioned his disciples yet. He hasn't done any of that. 
He's been baptized. He's been in the wilderness. He's been tested. He's launched his ministry. He's right on the front end. And right on the front end, Jesus says, don't think the following, which means as you follow me, listen to me, watch me, you're going to be tempted to think, this guy doesn't care about the Bible. This guy does not care about the law. In fact, I think this guy is trying to do damage to the law. Now, I I want you to hear this carefully. The word that Jesus uses here when he says, don't think I came to abolish the law, that word in the original language, Greek, okay, is this. It means to dissolve the law, disunite, overthrow, destroy, demolish, render meaningless. Jesus says, when you're listening to me, when you're watching me, when you're hearing what I say, who I say it to, you need to check yourself. And before you conclude that I just don't care about the law, that I don't care about the Bible, that I don't care about what God says, you need to look beyond the surface. You need to look deeper. Okay? Now let's read on. He says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Not only have I not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. Now that too is really important. This Greek word, literally, what Jesus is saying is, I have come to take the law to its fullest extent to make it complete, listen carefully, to carry it into effect, to perform it. Jesus says, not only have I not come to overthrow it, demolish it, render it meaningless, I've actually come to live it, to live it to its fullest. Hmm. Well, where does he go with this? Where does he go with this? Well, what you start realizing is, is that Jesus begins to talk about people who say a lot about the law, but they don't actually try to live it. In fact, notice this. He says in verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, the rule of the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Jesus says later in this very sermon is he says, the people who talk about the law but don't actually live it are kind of like people that build their house rather than on a rock or on a foundation. They build it on shifting sand. And he says, the difference between the two isn't the house. The difference between the two is the foundation it's on. One of them is stable. One of them is not. What's the difference in chapter 7? Because some people implement the law of God, and some people only talk about the law of God. Jesus said, I did not come to overthrow, render meaningless the law of God, I actually came to live it out. But he said, what I realize is, as I live it out, 
you might actually question if I know the law at all. Now, in this section of Scripture, in chapter 5, he begins to give examples. It looks like that he gives approximately six examples. The way they're set up is how they thought about the law about murder, the law about adultery, the law about divorce, the law about taking an oath, the law about revenge or an eye for an eye, and then the law about loving their enemies. So I want you to think about this. Basically, here's what Jesus says. In chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, he says, Don't lose sight of the value of others and your relationship to them and with them. Sure, I know what the law says. The law says, don't murder. He said, but what I'm trying to tell you is that if you lose sight of the value of other people, then murder is a genuine threat to your society. But if you never lost sight of the value of other people, then there is no threat of murder in your society. You won't actually need the law, don't murder, if you never forget the value of other people, right? So he says, don't even look at people and look at them as empty-headed. Don't call them a fool. Don't let yourself just literally marinate in your anger and your resentment and your bitterness toward other people because you'll end up hating them. And he says, what I'm trying to tell you first is that hating them is like murder. Why? Because you've lost their value. And if a society loses the value of a human, then murder is not far behind. He goes on in verses 31 and 32. He says, don't treat your relationships like they are transactions, but treat them as opportunities to express the divine image of the triune God. You said, well, I don't see that in verses 31 and 32. What I see in 31 and 32 is a law about divorce. What Jesus says is, you only need laws about divorce if you look at your relationships like transactions. But if you, if you understand that relationships are the place where you get to express your relationship with the triune God, then what is the relevance of divorce? I skipped over one accidentally. Go back, if you would, at verses 27 to 30. He says, you all realize the law said that adultery is wrong, but here's what I'm saying to you. If you treat human bodies, your own and someone else's, as an object of consumption rather than a divine image bearer, then yes, adultery will be inevitable in your society. But if you don't think about your own body or the body of someone else, as an object, something for you to use, but you look at those bodies as places where the divine image dwells, 
Well, then what's the relevance of adultery? You see, what Jesus is saying is this. When you look at the law at face value, right? Uh, the Ten Commandments. Don't murder and, you know, don't commit adultery and don't, don't do these things and so on and so forth. Jesus says, you understand that it's not that you're wrong about what the commandments say. It's that you're incomplete about what the commandments were meant to do. The commandments were meant to shape the people of God to where the commandments become irrelevant. I want you to go into the world of imagination with me for just a moment. As I was driving here today to uh, prepare to record the podcast, I was listening to an instrumental version of the song, I Can Only Imagine. That song has meant a lot to me for years, but after my father passed away in 2014, it took on an astounding meaning. When I think about what it will be like to be with God for all eternity, and I think about those famous passages of no tears and no heartache and no sickness, right? But I want your imagination to go further than that. Will anyone ever need to be told the Ten Commandments in our eternity with God? Will anyone ever have to say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet? You do realize that no one will ever have to say that. Because when we are in perfect oneness with God and perfect oneness with each other, all of those commandments are irrelevant. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, you all do realize that the laws aren't for the righteous. They're for the unrighteous. Because people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who don't forget the value of relationships, don't look at other people as objects, don't treat their relationships like transactions, they actually don't need to each day think to themselves, okay, remember, don't murder anybody today. They don't even have to spend the day thinking, don't hate anyone today. You see, what's on the surface requires a deeper look. Jesus goes on in verses 33 to 37, where he talks about taking an oath and letting your word be true. Jesus says, if you treat your word like a tool of manipulation, you're going to miss it. But if you actually give your word as a building block in a just and safe society, now you understand what your word means. So your word, like, yeah, 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 hey, shake hands on it. You know, I, I got it. Or yeah, 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 the check's in the mail. Or, or here's the object online, and here's the price. Pay for it. Words used as tools of manipulation. Jesus says, don't use an oath that way. Don't use an oath as a way to manipulate society. Give your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Give your word as a building block of a just and safe society. So what's on the surface? Well, you know, how do you make an oath? What's behind that? 
You don't need to make an oath if you give your word as a building block to a safe and just society. So how is Jesus teaching us on the front end of this? You can't really get the commandments unless you get past the surface and dig into what they are meant to fulfill, what they are meant to build, the world that the commandments shape us to create. Oh, that's powerful. But here's the second thing that Jesus is revealing, and this is extremely important. The meaning that Jesus is giving was in those commandments the whole time. When Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the commandments, but to fulfill them, then everything Jesus is teaching, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say, Jesus isn't abolishing the commandments by giving some new flippant interpretation. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what was in the commandment the whole time. So, Let's use our imaginations again. So we have these teachings. And according to this, we have these six examples. So imagine with me, six buckets, right? And one of the buckets says, don't murder. And one of the buckets says, don't commit adultery. And one of the buckets teaches you about divorce. One of them teaches you about oaths. One of you teaches about uh, uh, interactions with people surrounding revenge or forgiveness. And one of them teaches you about loving your enemies. Six buckets. Jesus said, you do realize that the meaning that I am assigning to these commandments was in all six buckets the whole time. God never meant for there to be an empty bucket that said, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, if you'd have stepped up and looked in that bucket, you'd have realized it was already full of meaning. That humans in Genesis 1 was recorded, were created in the image of Almighty God that they are bearers of the divine image. The apostle Peter, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 and 4, that we are sharers in the divine nature. But Jesus says, well, that was in the bucket the whole time. This was never meant to just be a stop sign in the intersection of life. Don't murder. Go ahead, green light on hate, green light on mistreatment, green light on putting people down, piling insults about them, gossip, uh, uh, discrediting them. Go ahead and do all of that. Just don't pull the trigger. Jesus said, why would you ever characterize the commandment that came from the heart and mind of God in such a shallow way? Why would you assume that since you didn't pull the trigger, that the bucket was empty, that there was no meaning in that law, that God didn't give that law to shape his people to build the community of the earth so that we would be a just and safe world in which people could flourish? You see, what Jesus is saying to us is the bucket that is labeled don't murder Well, that bucket was meant to be fulfilled in shaping a society that knows the value of people. The bucket that says don't commit adultery is full of the truth that says 
Well, people aren't objects. People aren't made to be used. You're not made to be used, but neither is the person you're looking at as an object. People aren't meant to be taken and used for sex or gratification. They're not meant for that. So the bucket that says don't commit adultery, don't focus on the bucket. Focus on the meaning in the bucket that is meant to create a life of flourishing. The bucket that teaches about divorce, that bucket becomes irrelevant in relationships. Where? Rather than looking at that relationship as a transaction, I look at it as an opportunity to express the divine DNA, the image in which you and I were created. So Jesus teaches us that these things you see on the surface, though they be true, they're incomplete. And it's not that Jesus had to show up and say to people, you do realize that God wasn't just putting up a stop sign so that you wouldn't murder each other. Can you imagine a society that said, Everything is acceptable. Just don't murder. Oh, what an awful society. Or a marriage that said, treat people however you want. Treat your spouse however you want. Just don't go physically have sex with another human. But beyond that, treat them however you want. You do realize that that was exactly the deficit in society that that commandment was meant to protect people from. You see, the wisdom of Jesus is so profound. He calls us to step beyond the surface and step into meaning, to step into the life that he meant to create for us. So I want to give you just a brief assignment, a little homework. Come on, I know it's the holiday season, but... Don't you want Christmas to go well? Don't you want our conversations to get better? Wouldn't you like for the transition of government to be better and more healthy and smoother than what we're going through right now? Wouldn't you like the accusations of political rhetoric to give way to genuine dialogue that solves problems? Who isn't going to raise their hand for that? Who wants to be mad all the time? Are you serious? Are you thinking that the best use of your mind, your heart, your voice, your body is to stir painful conversations? You know that God created you and me for more than that, right? We're created for much more than that. We are created for flourishing. And that means these conversations need an upgrade. So here's the assignment. You ready? Number one. Make a list of the resources that you turn to to keep yourself informed about important subjects. Just make a list. Let me give you an example. Scripture, personal experience, friends, members of your church, people in your community, books, hey, a podcast, right? Online news outlets, academic papers or forums or conferences, a dissertation, broadcast news outlets, a network news, cable news, NPR, PBS. You get the idea. Just that, That's my list. Make a list 
of the resources that you turn to to inform yourself, to, to help you not get stuck on the surface. Number two. So make that list. What resources do you turn to? Number two, when you look to these resources, take a moment and write down what they contribute to the conversation. What do they actually bring to the conversation, right? So if I'm reading that book, listening to that podcast, talking to a friend, listening to someone on the news, reading a dissertation, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm accessing, what do they actually bring to the conversation? For example, some might contribute data, charts, statistical analysis, timelines. Some of them might uh, contribute archived information, such as historical documents. Some of them might contribute legal or legislative history. Some might give us biography, as autobiographies, diaries, and journal entries. Some of them might give us video or audio recordings of events or interviews or lectures or speeches. All I'm wanting you to do is when you make that list of your resources, then make a list of what do they contribute to the conversation. That's number two. Number three, how do you prioritize your resources? I mean, what comes first? What gets the most traction? I mean, think about well, how much time do you actually spend with it? So if you have the news on all day, that's a lot of hours. How much time did you actually spend in the Word of God, right? You, you see what I'm saying? How are you prioritizing these resources? If you talk to friends who contribute affirmation to the opinions you already hold, okay. But how much time are you actually giving to friends, church members, families, people in your community who would either challenge or question or extend beyond the opinions you already hold? So number three is how do you prioritize them, okay? Now, Number four, this is going to get a little bit more tricky. Number four, who do you listen to and affirm? Like you think, that's right, that's right. I love that uh, pundit. I love that uh, newscaster. I love that broadcaster. I love that podcast. I love this, this, this. Who do you listen to and affirm? (laughs) Number five, you had to know this was coming. Who do you listen to with suspicion? I mean, who do you automatically, when you're going through the channels and you flip past that channel, you think, eh, what are they up to? What are they saying? What is this all about? What's their agenda? So what was number four? Who do you listen to and kind of just kind of subconsciously affirm? Number five was, well, who do you listen to and maybe kind of subconsciously just hold in suspicion, right? Because you realize that there were people all around Jesus Christ, who always held him in suspicion. They could have received from him manna from heaven, the living word of God and the living water. He said to the woman at the well, if you knew who you're sitting with, you would ask him for living water. But just as we're told in that passage, since Jews didn't get along with Samaritans and Samaritans get along with Jew, didn't get along with Jews, then of course she viewed them with suspicion. She had to get past that and get deeper to find that living water. Number six, who do you listen to with sympathy? Meaning, who do you hurt for, feel pity for? Who have you been moved by? Who have you been moved to donate to help? Who do you listen to with sympathy? But number seven, 
Who do you listen to with empathy? With empathy. Who do you feel with? Who do you hurt with? Who do you want to spend so much time in their world, listening to their thoughts, believing and feeling with their experiences that you could genuinely feel empathy with them? Number eight, can we be honest? Who are your go-to resources? If we were able to search your, uh, do an assessment of your internet search history, or if we could just watch and log who you watch the most on television, who are your go-to resources? Because number nine is, what are some of the limitations of the resources to whom you look for information? What are some of the limitations? Can we honestly admit that some of the people we read, some of the people we listen to, some of the people we enjoy are pretty biased and one-sided, or they kind of overemphasize one point of view? Could we just admit that? That doesn't mean that nothing they're saying is true. It just means that if we judge it on the surface, it's incomplete, and because it's incomplete, it will become incorrect in how it shapes us. I want to close out this podcast with a challenge. We need a a, a level of equipping and engagement and personal self-discipline in our society, and it's going to have to start both in the public arena and in the private privacy of our own heart. We're going to have to determine that we're going to move away from this shallow approach to these conversations, listening for sound bites and data bites that in a moment could be quickly assessed as having some level of truth in on the surface in one format or one context, but very quickly discovered that they're incomplete to many other contexts. And when we get into these difficult conversations and all we do is bat back and forth between us these opposing surface notions, we find ourselves making things worse, not better. Increasing the conflict, not adding to the peace. Not knowing each other better, but actually alienating each other further. So does does Jesus have some advice for us? Well, he actually does. This is what he says. Well, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I'm telling you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, will hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven, because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
and if you greet only your own people, aren't what are you doing more than others? Aren't even the pagans doing that? Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We could say it this way. Become now what you will be forever. Become now what you will be forever. Be focused on the complete divine integration of your life into the life of God. God is the world's future. God is your future. And in the future, we're not going to need any of these commands because we'll know the value of oneness with God and oneness with each other. So, become now what you will be forever. Thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. We ask you to like, subscribe, and share, and we look forward to seeing you next time.